0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And it's Monday, the day
1: of each week that we read back messages from the Stuff to Blow Your Mind email address. If you have never gotten in touch before, why not give it a try? You can email us at contact at stuff to blow your all kinds of messages are welcome we especially like feedback to recent episodes and if you have something interesting to add to a subject we've talked about but uh whatever you want to send send it on contact at stuff to blow your uh we got a great mailbag today let's see rob do you want to kick things off with this message uh, from nathan about future shock
3: Sure. Yeah, Nathan writes, Dear Robert and Joe, your episodes about future shock, particularly the third episode, brought to mind the original 1978 series, Connections, from science communicator James Burke. Over the course of the series, he gives an alternate view of social changes and scientific progress. Instead of the great man theory of history, where a lone genius invents a new device out of nothing, Burke posits that each innovation throughout history came about because somebody merely put existing pieces of knowledge and technology together in the right order. In the final episode, he sums up four potential responses to technological change in a manner similar to the Tofflers, and then raises questions about each response. One, scrap everything, go rural. Two, selective research only. Three, stop making new things, share what we have now. And four, keep going business as usual. The full series can be found on the Internet Archive in the in the links below. Send us some links, and the final monologue appears in the game The Witness. I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it before. Even though the technology he discusses, like the computer, has changed dramatically since the original air date, the lessons he draws from them are still as relevant as ever. Thank you for your surprising and refreshing range of topics, as always, Nathan.
1: Well, thanks, Nathan. Uh, I've never seen the full series, but I've seen segments clipped out into into individual videos. And I've read parts of the, the book version of Connections. Uh, I actually have a nice, well-worn, used copy here at the house that we got somewhere, I don't quite recall. Uh, but it, it was a good like used bookstore find at some point. But Rob, I know you're a big
3: fan of Connections, right? Yeah, I, I watched Connections as a kid, uh, as well as episodes of the other series he did, The Day the Universe Changed. And I, ha- I have both book versions, and we've actually turned to these books for his analysis on past episodes, specifically certain episodes of invention. I forget which ones in particular, but uh, yeah, I've long found his um, his view of technological change and evolution somewhat uh, somewhat captivating.
1: I agree, and I will say, in general, I think it's really good to be skeptical of the the so called great man theory of history, uh, or maybe to be less prejudicial, uh, call it the great person or great genius theory. Uh, and I, of course, my skepticism of this model applies not only to what is normally called history, you know, like uh, political history and stuff, but to the history of science and technology as well. One reason I think it's good to be skeptical of the, the great genius theory where a, you know, the, the idiosyncratic special qualities of a particular person come around, you know, come around at just the right time and change the world. One reason I think we should be skeptical of that view of history is uh, is because I'm wary of the danger of fundamental attribution error, which is a concept in psychology we've done some episodes on uh, in the past. If you want to go look those up to get the full story, uh, there, there are some mixed results about this finding. But basically, it seems that especially in more individualistic cultures and the United States would be one of those. We have a tendency to overemphasize the explanatory uh, importance of internal factors like personality and, you know, intellectual ability and things like that, and underemphasize the role of external factors like situation and context when explaining the behavior of people and the, you know, the the reasons that events unfold in the way they do. Uh, So I think at least in the individualistic culture of the United States, I think we're probably way too biased in the direction of, uh, of rating the importance of factors like the personality and genius of famous people. And we, we probably underestimate the importance of circumstances and context and trends. And so to come back to Burke, yeah, I think a lot of major turning points in the history of science and technology arose not just because of the personal genius of specific inventors and scientists. Though, of course, that is a factor too. You don't wanna say like, oh, Isaac Newton wasn't smart. But I think we should consciously force ourselves to pay attention to the importance of situations. I think it's really important that there were situations in history where a lot of knowledge and material wealth and talent was being brought together in a context that maybe allowed for experimentation. And when we look back at history, we probably do have a cognitive bias, this fundamental attribution error that makes the genius seem more decisive and makes us ignore the relative importance of situations and context. And yeah, so I have perceived in the past one of the goals of, of Burke's work in the history of science and technology was to show the ways that uh, it's a story of intersections and connections, certain pieces of pre-existing knowledge or know-how, technology, particular needs or questions, all happening to come into contact at certain times and places in history, leading to progress and not just like, oh, wow, this one genius changed everything. That's my take.
3: Yeah, no, no, this is, this is, I agree with all of this. Yeah. um, You know, you have to factor in things like market forces, uh, communication between different cultures. Uh, urbanization. I mean, there are just so many different uh, elements that go into the the, the alchemy of any given um, uh, innovation, invention, et cetera. Uh, even in our Weird House Cinema episodes, um, uh, sometimes we refer to it as such, but certainly in our notes, we always call the section that gets into uh, cast members, directors, writers, et cetera, as connections. Uh, and I often think about 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 uh, about Burke's work as one might apply it to cinema. You know, it's, it's not just you, you know, oftentimes you do have like one really important individual that's, you know, this is their vision, this is their talent manifested on the screen. But to to varying degrees, and I think oftentimes it's it's more of this case, I mean, you have all these different talents coming together and circumstances aligning them um, that make the movie exactly what it is. I think that's well said. And, you know, people don't
1: often apply this lens as much to like art and entertainment as they do to, I don't know what we were just talking about history of science or technology or politics or whatever, but I I do think it applies there as well. I mean, even in the realm of B movies on the show before, you know, we've talked about how different a Roger Corman movie, one Roger Corman movie is from another, depending on circumstances, like what was Corman's budget? How long did Mm -hmm. he have to make it? What kind of actors did he have access to? Uh, and this leads to incredibly different results. It's not always just, you know, the, the, the lone genius at the top of the, the organizational chart of the, of the film, uh, Deciding whether something is good or bad by their individual personal qualities.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, real quick, I'll mention uh, when it comes to James Burke's uh, work. Uh, I had to I had to look up his filmography again because I know there had been rumblings about him doing another Connections book and/or series to uh, sort of bring things into our, our our modern time. He is he is still still alive, still active. Uh, there was also a Connections three that came out in the late nineteen nineties. So uh, I'm not sure where what he's working on at the moment, if that project is uh, in the works. But I hope it is, because I would be very interested to see um, uh, the connections approach to uh, the modern state of technology. I think I
1: recall one thing being about connections actually having some overlap with the predictions of the Tofflers in Future Shock, which is uh, he I think he predicted a. An ever accelerating rate of uh, of change and development in science and technology, and then downstream from that in culture, uh, primarily in his view, because of the increase in connections, because like the incre- the uh, improvements in communication technology make connections happen more frequently than they ever did before, and this is what he thought was going to uh, was going to keep accelerating the the technological change.
0: Hmm.
3: Anyway, solid listener mail, Nathan. Thanks for writing in.
1: Okay, this next message is in response to our episodes on the Ig Nobel Prize, uh, Ig Nobel Prizes from 2023. This is from Sam, and it is about the 2023 Geology Prize, which was awarded to an essay about eating and tasting fossils. Sam says, hello, Robert and Joe. I am a recent geology graduate from the University of West Georgia. I just finished your first episode of the Ig Nobel Prizes, and I have an answer to your question of what does the Eocene epoch taste like? I asked this at the end of the episode. Yeah. Apparently, Sam has the answer. Sam says, I work as a clay tester for a kaolinite mine in middle southern Georgia, and some of our clay comes from the Eocene. And as a geologist, I, of course, had to give it a thorough examination by tasting a small amount. The Eocene age clay has an acidic and bitter taste with undertones of vanilla and a texture like powdered peanut butter or protein powder. This may seem strange, but it is common for practicing geologists to taste minerals, fossils, and even plain dirt to clarify properties both chemical and physical. For example, I have been taught to taste the difference between the mineral halite, which is uh, NACL, and sylvite, KCL, which appear identical. Halite tastes salty, as it is salt, N-A in the formula, that's sodium, sodium chloride. Same goes on. And sylvite tastes bitter due to the potassium content. Uh, another example is the, quote, tongue test on fossils, where putting the tip of your tongue on a potential fossil will help identify fossil from rock. Fossils being porous will stick to your tongue more than rock and sometimes mm. require conscious effort to unstick your tongue. Ugh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds kind of scary. Um, We even taste a small amount of soil samples to tell between clay and silt. Silt has the consistency of toothpaste and clay like creamy peanut butter. Love the podcast. Hope I provided an interesting and entertaining answer to your question, Sam. Oh, thank you, Sam. You absolutely did. This is one of my favorite kinds of listener mail.
3: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
1: Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
3: All right, this next one comes to us from Jeff. Jeff says, uh, this is Jeff with one F. Greetings, science humans. In the l antenna episode, I think it was Joe who mentioned manganese nodules in passing. I believe this would be an excellent topic for a proper episode.
1: And just for clarity, I was going to insert a note here to describe these uh, manganese nodules, which are I've also seen sometimes called ferromanganese nodules or polymetallic nodules. Are these mineral concretions that form slowly over time at the bottom of the ocean? So, if you ever see like deep sea rover camera footage of a, you know, a a submersible going over the the sea floor, sometimes you will see them scattered all about looking like weird gray metal turnips. They're these Mm -hmm. strange little spheres or balls on the ocean floor. And they're formed out of a variety of metals. Manganese and iron are common ingredients, hence ferromanganese nodules, the name there. But they also sometimes contain other metals like nickel and cobalt, too. And a cool thing about these nodules is that they form by accretion of concentric layers around a nucleation point, which might be, I think, like a, it could be like a grain of clay or like a dead organism or something. There's a little nucleation point, and then it starts accreting these metal layers around it. So they have rings like a tree trunk. Uh, I think one estimate I came across was that they tend to grow about a millimeter every million years. But uh, because of the way these rings form in layers, you can cut a manganese nodule in half and analyze its structure to get information about seawater chemistry going back millions of years. Another interesting thing is that they somehow tend to remain at the top of the ocean floor sediment layer over these millions of years instead of getting Uh, subducted, you know, instead of getting buried and incorporated Mm. into the rock beneath. So somehow they they stay on top there while they're accumulating all these
3: metal layers. Uh, So anyway, that's manganese nodules. Back to Jeff's message. In the original Star Trek episode featuring a monster in a mining colony, I think I've seen this one, by the way, the miners discovered a bunch of odd spheres made of mostly silicone and had been destroying them because they figured they were just garbage. They didn't connect them at all to the mysterious attacks on their workers. The reveal was that a silicone-based alien creature was lashing out, trying to protect its eggs from the humans. When I saw the episode, I thought there was no way humans encountering something so peculiar and suspicious would just dispose of them without curiosity, particularly while miners were being killed on a regular basis. But given that similar nodules exist on Earth, the Federation had probably run into many naturally occurring phenomena like these on other planets with no association to living creatures. So I suppose it's not so strange that a corporation would think nothing of clearing the way of unprofitable rubble. A second example was the Epcot attraction Horizons, in which there was a scene depicting a robot on the ocean floor picking up manganese nodules, as well as a huge system of vacuum tubes sucking them up into floating collection units on the surface. Apologies for the Zebruder-like quality of the attached photos. The attraction was demolished before the age of the smartphone camera. The scene is not directly referenced or explained in the narration It was just an awesome extra throwaway detail to experience. At the time, I thought it was silly fantasy that anything so ridiculously useful would be sitting in convenient chunks, easily accessible on the ocean floor. I chalked it up to excessive optimism on the part of Disney ride designers. But these nodules were discovered in the 19th century, so they clearly knew what they were doing. Uh, To borrow a joke
1: from Mystery Science Theater 3000, uh, these photos of the Epcot Horizon Center do look like someone's last known photograph. Yeah, they're pretty cool.
3: I've seen a recent documentary featuring prototypes that are remarkably similar to what the Disney people imagined in the 1980s. Given that these metals are now in high demand for electric vehicle and mobile device batteries, there is now talk of and controversy about mining the nodules on a massive scale. In both these instances, my dismissive smug response was purely a result of my ignorance. The world is simply cooler than I thought possible. Now that I think about it, perhaps you guys could also do an episode on the unreasonably beautiful and artificial-looking crystal caves on Earth. They also seem like impossible creations of Hollywood set designers, but are in fact just nature doing its thing. I wonder if the guys who built Superman's Fortress of Solitude vacationed underground in Mexico. Thanks again for your continued pursuit of the strange and wonderful Jeff.
1: Well, thank you for the great email, Jeff. Uh, You know, we we did an interview years ago i think this was the interview we did with uh diva amon about um uh where we talked about some of the controversies about ocean floor mining but i don't recall if that was specifically with reference to manganese nodules or to something or about something else
3: yeah i don't remember if that in particular was pointed out but um You know, I'm sure if we'd known to ask her about it at the time, we could we could have. But uh, yeah, that was that was a great interview. That one's uh, back there in the archives somewhere. All right. This next one comes to us from Adam. Adam says, hey, guys, on the newest episode regarding the Ig Nobel Prizes, the horror manga author Junji Ito has one called, and uh, I may be pronouncing this wrong, Gyo, Uh, it's G-Y-O that involves necromechanical uh, implications. Really great story, check it
1: out. Ah, So the necromechanical connection would be that one of the Ig Nobel prizes we talked about from this year was awarded to a uh, a team that had done research on how to turn a dead spider into a gripper claw with uh, like just uh, fluid
0: pressure.
3: That's right, and so perhaps not so surprising Uh, It sounds like Ji Ito has has explored this territory as well. Um, This is kind of a fun coincidence because the day this email came in, uh, Joe and I were over at the Museum of Illusions in Atlanta getting some updated uh, photographs taken of us. Uh, And and look out, you'll get to see these uh, uh, in the near future, um, wherever photos of us are appropriate. And uh, the uh, we were talking with the uh, marketing manager there, and she recommended uh, Junji Ito. I forget exactly how it came up, but she 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 brought up this particular um, uh, artist.
1: I think she said she had listened to our episode about
3: melting, and uh, that's what it was. Is that what it was? Yeah, because he's so I I, I haven't read any of his full works, uh, but. I'm I'm familiar with him by reputation. I've seen various stills. Uh, you know, a lot of his stuff is very—I I wouldn't say maybe meme-worthy, but it's shared a lot because his work has this real visceral, nightmarish quality to it, where a single image is just instantly more horrifying. Than, than most illustrations you've seen from a comic book or manga or etc uh, his work has also been adapted multiple times including the long-running in, long long-running tomi film franchise in japan as well as the 2000, 2000 film spiral um i was looking around it looks like he's also done some guest art for magic the gathering um joe included some some uh, screenshots of these magic the gathering cards that Junji Ito did—they're uh, pretty horrifying. It's like black and white manga style, and again, all sorts of strange body horror type things occur. Oh boy, it's
1: sort of hard to tell what I'm looking at because the picture's a little shrunken. Am I seeing a skull with peacock feathers? Is that?
3: Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, the, the, the not a detailed shot of this particular magic card, but yeah, something yeah. something horrible or wonderful happening to flesh. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to say it's always one or the other isn't it, yeah so uh yeah yeah I should at some point if I have the uh, if I'm brave enough, I should probably pick up some of uh, his ar- original work and and dive in and see see how how my my brain takes it
1: okay, you want to do one last message about weirdhouse cinema here sure, what do you got? Uh, I'll do this one from Chelsea. <laughs> Chelsea says, hi, guys, just listen to your stickiness part three episode uh, where I think we asked for examples of sticky monsters because we came up with fewer than than we expected to find. Uh, And Chelsea says, I have a sticky monster for you. When I was in elementary school in the 90s, I was plagued by gooey gus the purple Hmm. chewing gum slime monster from the tv show ghost rider uh rob i had to look up a picture of gooey gus i I put it in the outline for you if you want to scroll down and see him here uh so he's like purple and very melted he looks like a a melted crayon man but he's wearing a pink turtleneck and what looks like a black
3: leather jacket like the fawns (laughs) <laughs> weird yeah and the purple coloration reminds me of another nice uh, oozy creature from uh, uh, media of yesteryear the, uh, the, the Power Rangers villain Ivan Ooze played by mm. the great Paul Freeman <laughs> I don't remember what Ivan Ooze looked like though I remember the name he's you know he's purple and oozy and you know looks like a Power Rangers villain
1: I remember Rita Repulsa what was the relationship of Rita Repulsa to Ivan Ooze was one the other's <laughs> boss
3: I guess he must be a boss. I'm, I'm not really sure about how everyone's connected in that that universe. But of course, Paul Freeman, for those of you that don't recognize the name offhand, of course, played uh, Belloc in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So you know, <laughs> t- tremendously fun actor. Uh, and uh, I, I, I don't know if I've ever watched the Power Rangers movie that he's in in its entirety, but I'm assuming he has some fun with this role. Okay,
1: well, I don't know which one came first, so either Gooey Gus or Ivan Ooze might have to sue the other one for, for stealing a shtick. But uh, anyway, to pick up with, with Chelsea's message here, Chelsea says, Some of the other girls and I believed he lived in the storm grate in the corner of the playground. <laughs> oh, boy, that, that is, <laughs> that's so good. Uh, we spent at least a few recesses putting grass clippings and dandelions down the grate as an offering so he wouldn't ooze out of the grate. And encase us all in bubblegum.
3: <laughs>
1: I love this because this is a this is a a bullseye of like a childhood behavior. It's like, yes, I did stuff like that. Did that this is what kids do. But it, it also describes the invention of religion. <laughs> Chelsea goes on to say, side note, I'm shocked that you all made it through the discussion of glutinous rice that was in the stickiness part one episode without mentioning its uses against Jiang as featured in Mr. Vampire, which was an excellent Weird House episode. Thanks for all the great discussions, Chelsea. Chelsea, you're exactly right. You know, I thought it would come up. I'm pretty sure when we were planning the episode, it just never did.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess we have plenty to talk about um, without touching on that. Um, also, I'm not I'm not sure if the stickiness has anything to do with its vampire fighting powers. I, I could be wrong, but I, I, I always thought it was more of the dry rice. But I would not mm. be shocked at all if some cultures ascribe protective qualities specifically to cook sticky rice as well. It does seem like that would have the you would have the advantage of it sticking to the vampires when you pelted them with it.
1: I do remember it being a plot point in the movie that it had to be the glutinous rice, right? Mm-hmm. Like the regular rice was no good because he went to the rice dealer and the rice dealer tried to scam him by charging yeah. him
3: for sticky rice, but giving him regular rice. Yeah, he either gave him regular rice or he cut it with with, yeah. a, with another rice. So, uh, yeah, that was a, a fun part of a, yeah, a really fun movie.
1: I, I feel like we – I only barely remember now. We may have gone into this in the episode, but like why – yeah. Why was it? Why did it need to be glutinous rice to have the magical effect? Like, why wouldn't regular rice work? Yeah, I'm not sure if we
3: specified. Um,
1: yeah. OK, do you think that's enough emails to appease Gooey Gus? And I uh, think so. Yeah, prevent definitely. Him from from taking our souls.
3: <laughs> yeah. Look up a, a photograph of uh, Gooey Gus if you get a chance. Uh, it's It's worth it's worth the trip. It's everything you're hoping it'll be so yeah if you want to write in if you have thoughts on anything we've discussed here today recent episodes possible future episodes of stuff to blow your mind um weird house cinema monster fact artifact it's all fair game um uh, we'll just uh, remind you that lister mail occurs in the stuff to blow your mind podcast feed every monday
1: Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
0: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.
3: monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms visit visible.com
2: top Two is like no other course two 420 foot vertical speedways three launches all right let's talk strategy